Well, this morning is our 10th week in our series in the book of Exodus. And the title of the message this morning is Imperfect People and a Prelude of God's Power. I've got two main points that we're going to look at, two main ideas that I want us to see in the text at the beginning of Exodus chapter 7, where we are this morning. There's two main things. The first two verses are going to really continue this theme that we've been looking at, stressing the reality of humanity as fallen and needy and sinful. And the second idea that we'll see as we move through the text is how God's power is greater than, it's much superior to all other powers that exist in this world. So let's start with verses 1 and 2 of Exodus chapter 7. And Yahweh said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. Now, this statement that's made here at, at the start of this in verse 1, it's really important for us to understand rightly. Okay? We need to recognize God has called Moses to a role that Moses is not inherently qualified for. Right? His family lineage isn't perfect. He's not the great guy. We talked about this all last week. He's got problems in his line of those who came before him and problems that will come after him. Moses is not some special guy from a special family line, but he is called by God to a very special role. He's called to this role, this task of representing God to the world around him. But we need to be very clear when we look at the life of Moses, and I think we have for the last 10 weeks. We understand Moses is not a god. He's just a man. I mean, over and over again in this series, we've looked at how Moses really is not like the God who has called him very much at all, right? When Moses stepped into the presence of Yahweh at the burning bush, Yahweh did not respond, Moses, about time, man. Hey, pull up a chair. Let's talk uh, equals here, right? That was not the words of God to Moses. When Moses entered into the presence of God, he entered in as an unholy man, stepping into the presence of the holy God. And so God told Moses, humble yourself, take off your sandals, take care, listen to what I am telling you. We know Moses' life was filled with sin and imperfections all over the place, right? Moses is a man who's committed murder. He was one who lied, who directly disobeyed the commands of God time and time again. He repeatedly has doubted God. He's repeatedly questioned God, offered objections when God tells him what to do. He's lost faith and does not trust in the word of God. As God says, this will happen, Moses says, but it didn't happen the way I thought. Over and over again, we see this sinful frailty of Moses. He was certainly imperfect, certainly flawed, very human, unlike our God, unlike Yahweh, who's been revealing himself throughout this time. In contrast to Moses as the one who's always good, who's always righteous, who's always perfect, who's totally, completely without sin. There's a vast difference between God and Moses. And yet God chooses to use Moses chooses to place Moses in a special position of ministry to be Yahweh's representative to Pharaoh and to speak the word of God to others. As imperfect and as flawed as Moses is, God chooses to use him. See, here's the encouragement for us about Moses and about this reality. All throughout history, God has chosen to use imperfect people as his representatives. Right? I mean, from Moses, before Moses, we've looked at Abraham, we've looked at his sin, we've looked at Moses' life, those who come after Moses. Go, go many years past Moses to David, another key biblical figure, right? Mo, uh, David's king of Israel as God's representative, this, this best king that's been there in the, in the uh, ruling of Israel. 
representing God to the people. Yet David is a sinner too. He's a man guilty of theft, guilty of murder, guilty of adultery, guilty of failure as a father, and much, much more. David is a sinful, imperfect person to represent God. And all throughout the prophets, we find the same theme with them. Many prophets were raised up over time. A particularly uh, relatable, perhaps, example for many of us would be Jonah. The man who receives a message from God, go and preach to these people who Jonah hates, who Jonah doesn't want to see saved. And because he understands how merciful and compassionate God is, and that God, if the gospel is proclaimed to them, if the call of repentance goes out to them, God will most likely grant them repentance and be merciful to them. And Jonah doesn't want anything to do with that, hates them so much that Jonah gets on a boat and literally goes as far the opposite direction as he can to try and get away from God. Right? If there's ever an example of a sinful prophet of God, Jonah has to be near the top of our list. But it's not just Old Testament figures who are all sinful and imperfect to be representatives of God. This continues into the New Testament era too. You have Peter, a guy who's quick to anger, quick to violence, very careless with his words, doesn't know when to shut up, right? You have Matthew, who's a tax collector, which means a thief and a liar. And of course you have Paul, who hates Christians, he hates them so much that he's going out arresting them, having them killed before his conversion. And yet all of these guys are chosen by God to be his representatives on earth and to proclaim his word to other people. All throughout history, God has chosen to use imperfect people as his representatives. And God continues this pattern, not just in the biblical era, but all throughout church history too. I love church history. I love to learn from from great heroes of the faith, but name one and there's flaws to be found there. Luther, who we've often talked about, proves just how fallen and messed up and imperfect he was, especially in his later writings against the Jewish people. Says awful things that should not have been said. He was fallen. He was imperfect. He was not just a great man used by God. He was a man used by a great God. And God continues to do this even to today. God continues to call imperfect people to be his representatives and to lead his people, just as he called Moses and Aaron and their imperfections and used them. God calls and gives imperfect people to continue to lead his people today. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 tells us, God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. God still is using imperfect representatives to speak his message and lead his people today. Because no one in that list is going to be perfect. No one that God has given to the church is perfect. And the reality of this should push us then to appreciate Christ more. Because while Moses is an imperfect representative of God, and he's very limited in how he gets to represent God, he's not even able to do all of it himself, right? God's going to speak to him. He has to tell Aaron. Aaron is then going to speak to Pharaoh. Every pastor today is an imperfect representative of God. We fail over and over again, repenting, relying upon God's grace day by day, just like the rest of us. But unlike the rest of us, there's Jesus, who is the only perfect representative of God because he himself is God. This is what sets him apart from us. Every other leader we can ever look at at any moment of history, throughout the biblical narrative, throughout church history, even today, anyone that we look at is imperfect except Christ, who is the perfect representation of God. Jesus is, as we've talked about in this series, Yahweh come in the flesh to speak directly to this world. 
Not just to speak through Moses and Aaron as he did at the time of Exodus. Not just to speak through pastors like me who take the Bible here and open it up and speak his words to you. No, what we find is Jesus coming as God in the flesh to speak immediately, clearly, directly to God's people himself. Jesus Christ is the only perfect representative of God because he is God himself. And the Bible tells us this truth and these amazing things that that means in passages that I, I want you to be familiar with, so I draw us back to them quite often, like Colossians 1, 15 to 20, which tells us Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is Jesus, who's different than you and I who's perfect in every way because we are not, who reconciles imperfect people to himself by his blood. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3 tells us about Jesus long ago and at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is God. Yahweh come personally in human flesh to reveal himself fully to us. We have to believe and live in light of that truth if we are going to be saved. Because Jesus is just as Thomas confessed, just days after Christ had died as a substitutionary atonement, rose from the dead, completing his work of saving his people. Thomas declared what all true believers will declare, that Jesus is my Lord and my God. Jesus perfectly reveals God to us because only he is perfect. He's the one that you and I must have faith in, the one we must trust, the one we must obey, the one we must look to to save us because there's no lasting true salvation for sin to be found anywhere else. It's not going to be found in just looking to Moses and Aaron in Exodus. They're not perfect. They are not the final deliverers. They will struggle and continue to object to God's perfect plans. They will sin over and over as the narrative continues to show. They represent God, but they themselves are not God. And yet God uses them in a powerful way because God's plans are never foiled or fail because of mere man. In fact, what we see in the next few verses here is when God speaks, again, a a sure prophetic promise of what is to come, God declares he is the God who will bring to pass his plan perfectly. Look at verses 3 to 5 there in Exodus 7. God says, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So again, who's going to do all of this work here? It's God. 
right? Just look how, how often he says, I will do this. I am going to do this. God alone is really the one who's doing all of the work, while Moses and Aaron, they're just playing the part of imperfect messengers, imperfect representatives, because that's what they are. The real power, the one with real authority, the one with really able to accomplish his task is God. Listen, God's power to work is not limited by anyone or anything. We have to see that as we walk through the book of Exodus. No matter what is happening, there's God's power greater than every challenge faced. Nothing is going to stop God. In fact, what he keeps telling us, why we keep stressing this, is so we understand rightly everything that's about to take place. Everything is going exactly according to this God's plan. His power is ensuring everything he has said will come to pass. So what we're going to see in the next coming weeks as we start to look at the the plagues and all the things that take place there, is not God constantly trying to come up with another idea because, man, I thought for sure this one was going to work. He's not surprised. He's not just getting frustrated that, man, Pharaoh keeps resisting me. He's, he's, he's so powerful. I've underestimated him. That's not God's posture at all. It's all part of God's plan. God's plan is not going to be modified 10 times with 10 different plagues that come next. It's not trial and error. Which of these mighty works is the key to unlocking Pharaoh's heart and and getting my plan forward? That's not what's going on. Pharaoh, Pharaoh is going to resist. Pharaoh is going to be stubborn because God has that as part of his plan. God keeps telling us, Pharaoh is no power compared to me. And I, God, listen to what he has said. He says here, I am going to harrow it in Pharaoh's heart. I'm going to multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh will not listen. That's part of my plan. So I will then lay my hand upon Egypt and bring out my people from the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment so that all the Egyptians will know Pharaoh's not God. Pharaoh doesn't have all power. I, Yahweh, am the true God. That's what's coming. All of what takes place in Exodus takes place by God's perfect plan. He's prophetically promising this to Moses. He's not saying, let's see how this plays out as we go forward. He says, here is what will take place. Now watch it unfold. Because God's power to work is not limited by anyone or anything. Which again should push us back to think of Christ. God's commitment to coming and saving his people, as he's promised repeatedly to do in the book of Exodus, is ultimately going to be culminated in Jesus Christ coming, the perfect representative, God himself, coming to this earth personally to accomplish himself the great work of salvation through his life and death and resurrection. And we have to see, if we, if we read the Bible rightly, nothing could ever have stopped that plan or changed it. Satan had no power to stop Christ. The religious leaders and opponents of Jesus, they could do nothing to him until it was his time. Jesus was always in complete control of all things, including the very moment of his death, when he says he laid down his life of his own free choice and his resurrection when he took up his life by his divine choice as well. Jesus accomplishes his purposes no matter what opposes him. And this is the one whom you and I profess to believe and profess to follow. So this should encourage us. This should challenge us. This should give us confidence when life is hard. This should give us boldness when tasks ahead look difficult. Jesus will accomplish his purpose no matter what opposes him. Back in Exodus 7, God again speaks to them and he gives them the command again, go to Pharaoh. I am about to work. I will do what I have said. So in Exodus 6, 7 to 10, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as Yahweh commanded them. 
Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as Yahweh commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. But notice, Pharaoh still won't submit to God. He sees a display, a sign, a wonder, this incredible thing. Instead of looking to God and submitting to God, he looks to his magicians. Hey, what can you do? So in verses 11 and 12, Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. Each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. That's an interesting little encounter here. I don't know if you've ever paid too close of attention to this. Maybe you've asked the question, what is happening here? I thought, I thought God was the one who's going to work all the mighty miracles and powers, but here magicians are, are doing something. What's, what's going on? Well, by their secret arts, they could imitate what they saw Moses and Aaron do. But understand, it's only an imitation. One of the things that was fascinating as I was reading about this and studying this was in Egypt, you might know this from just living in this world, but in Egypt, snake charming's been a practice been around for a very long time. In fact, it was around during this time. And one of the tricks that we know magicians would use regarding snakes is that they, would, they had figured out if you took a snake, there were certain points you could press near its head that would cause it to go into essentially a catatonic state. It would just go rigid and could not move at all. And so from, from this time, we have records dating way, way back of this practice being done. They could have grabbed the snake, picked it up, made it stiff, catatonic in this state, pretend it's a staff, a stick, a, a, a carving, whatever they wanted to do. And if they were far enough away, they could convince you it was something pretend. Then as they threw it or could rub the tail in a certain way, it would remove the catatonic state and the snake would begin to move. So they did this practice even all this time ago. They had this practice down, this trick planned of being able to grab that, squeeze that, make it stiff, and then throw it down and look like a snake has come to life. Now, that's one possible explanation for what's happened here. We know this practice was being done at that time, and it still continues to this day. One commentary that I was reading actually said, in the 1960s, tourists who went to Cairo, Egypt, could still see this exact same thing practice. You could watch how they did it and watch them do it. And it says very convincing uh, from a distance at that day, even in the 60s. So that's one explanation for what happened here could explain what they were able to do in this particular case. But another equally important explanation to consider is one that, that I think is probably more likely. The Bible makes clear that false prophets do exist and do have a measure of power and ability to do false signs and wonders in order to lead people astray from God. Jesus warns this is a reality in the New Testament, Matthew 24, 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and, listen, perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray. Paul likewise affirms that's the reality of this world we live in. 2 Thessalonians 2.9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. See, the reality is we live in a world that's not just material. It's not just natural. There are supernatural activities that take place in this world because supernatural beings, God, demons, angels, exist. And humanity can be swayed, one of two very dangerous directions, like a pendulum that goes too far to one side. We tend to oscillate between this side, the extreme here, or this side, the extreme here. On this side is the extreme of hyper-interest in supernaturalism that leads to the idolatrous seeking of signs and wonders and an unhealthy obsession with the supernatural. For some, 
That's where they swing, way over here. Yes, everything's supernatural. So my, my tire blew out. It was a demon who got me. Well, it could have been the nail, right? <laughs> Not everything has to have a supernatural explanation. For some people, that's what they see. Everything has got to be supernatural. Some people swing the opposite direction, though, and come over here, and they have a rationalistic worldview that dismisses supernaturalism altogether, that there's no powers beyond us. Everything can be explained. It's all got to be a trick. It's all got to be an illusion. Nothing that cannot be explained can actually happen. But the reality is the Bible would land us somewhere more here in the middle. And if we go to either extreme, we lose the balance that the Scripture presents to us. C.S. Lewis talked about this rightly in the Screwtape Letters when he rightly observes, there are two great errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Look, if it's always your temptation, if it's always your explanation to go to a supernatural explanation, you're missing the point. Likewise, if you dismiss all the supernatural activity that we see recorded all throughout Scripture and say, no, 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 they, must, they just didn't understand, they're, they're too ancient, too primitive, you're missing the testimony of Scripture. There are supernatural forces that are at work. We should not deny that false prophets do exist, and they do have some limit, some measure of power. I think these magicians in Egypt do. They can be used by the enemy to perform false signs and wonders, but they're counterfeits that are always designed to deceive and lead the people of God astray. The Bible does tell us this can happen and warns us of it clearly, so we should believe that and heed those warnings. But we must always remember what is demonstrated even in this encounter here. The power of demonic forces, the power of counterfeits, whatever is produced is never equal to the power of God, and it's never outside of his ability to handle so these magicians, they can imitate what they see Aaron do in this first sign that is given, but their powers are quickly destroyed by God even in that moment. Look at the rest of verse 12. They've turned their staffs to snakes, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. So God's response is, hey, neat trick, neat power, good thing, not enough. My power is greater than yours. The magicians are going to continue to try and imitate God's power for just a short time. We'll see this next week when we start to look at the plagues. But very quickly, in this progression of plagues that God's going to send, the magicians are overwhelmed. And they're the first to recognize this truly is the power and hand of God. These are not tricks. These are not demonic forces. This is beyond us. We can't do what this God is doing. They're even given this warning here. And they would have understood it. When, in that day, when something swallows up something else, it wasn't just a sign that the first thing was greater. It was a sign that that thing had complete control and dominion over the other thing. So whatever was swallowed up now had all the power of the lesser thing that it ate. So in the New Testament, Paul's aware of this. And he very intentionally uses this phrase in 1 Corinthians 15, talking about Christ, where he says, Christ has swallowed up death and the power of sin and grave. He didn't just beat it down a little bit. He's not just a little bit over it. He's completely consumed it. It's all within. He's greater than all of it. Nothing can compare to him. So understand this morning, Christ's work is the greatest display of true power that there ever was. Paul tells us the work of Christ in Ephesians 1, 19-23 is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. 
And look how he describes power here. It's according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he has put under his feet and gave him as the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The power of Christ in his death and resurrection specifically, is greater than all other powers. Not just a little bit, but far above all other powers. No matter what sign, no matter what wonder, no matter what counterfeit could be produced, God's power is immeasurably greater because it alone is true, real power. So we must take care not to look at signs or wonders or powers or performances and derive our lives from those things, putting our faith in those things. The Bible warns us there are many false teachers, many false prophets. There will be many false signs and wonders that exist, and those things are all working hard to deceive and draw people away from the true living God. So we must take the warning of Christ that we heard seriously. We must take the warning of the apostles seriously. We must take the words of Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.3 seriously because this is the reality we live in. There is a time coming, Paul tells Timothy, when people will not endure sound teaching but will have itching ears and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. In every age, There is the danger of people rejecting sound teaching, rejecting the words of God that are given to us in Scripture, and instead looking for teachers and teachings and experiences and powers that will suit their passions. People are tempted to this in every single generation, including ours, to reject the words of God, which is what Pharaoh's done. Pharaoh's heard the word of God spoken to him. He's heard who God is, and he's rejected all. All of that and what he's looking for are signs and wonders to prove that maybe I really should listen to that God. But as long as his magicians can do what the representatives of Yahweh can do, he won't believe. He's rejected the word and now he's looking for other things to excuse his rejection. And people are tempted towards this in all generations. People are tempted to reject the word of God because they get frustrated sometimes with the imperfect messenger that God is speaking through. A pastor, church leader, the reformers face this all the time. Paul himself faced rejection in the New Testament. He was mocked in his own day by his opponents because apparently Paul wasn't as good of a speaker as he was a writer. And so they mock him. You're not eloquent. You don't speak well. And you're not very handsome, by the way, Paul. They make fun of how he looks, too. Today, we face a real danger in this area because of media technology. So look, we're just, we're just going to apply this, right? Pastorally, I love you too much to, to, to just leave the assumption and think here's the truth and you're going to figure out every way to apply it. I'm going to trust the Spirit will help you personally apply it. But let me give you some ways that I see dangers for us today. There's a danger that comes from media technology because people can be attempted to ignore the pastor or pastors that God has placed over them in the local church and instead run off to listen more to what somebody says on Facebook or YouTube or a podcast or a book, or whatever else. Look, those mediums are all good things. I take advantage of them all the time. Listened to two audiobooks this last week. Several lectures, several podcasts got caught up on. Those are great things when they're used rightly to supplement our faith. But if we begin to use them 
and have them create in us judgmental feelings towards the local church or to other believers around us, if they're beginning to stir up bitterness in us, if they're beginning to reinforce our opinions and we think by whoever we're listening to that we're always right, you're not listening to the right person. If they're only saying what you want to hear, you're missing out on the benefit that's supposed to be there. The enemy's distorted it. The enemy's using it to harm God's people. Be careful. The enemy is at work. He has power. He will seek to lead people astray. There's the temptation also in every generation to want to see signs and wonders and powerful acts instead of us doing the hard work that we've been clearly called to in Scripture of learning to study and listen and trust in God's Word. It's perfect and sufficient. That's what 2 Timothy 3 so clearly and powerfully tells us. This is what we need to live a life of faith and godliness fully equips us. So again, technology and communications can make this a real challenge for us today. Because we can see videos or we can hear claims about things that God is doing, supernatural things perhaps in other parts of the world, and we can begin to think, the enemy can whisper into our ear, hey, your experience that's just so normal, your experience of, of digging in and studying the word, you're missing out. God's got all this great stuff going on, but it's not happening for you, so you're not. You're not really one of his. The enemy can use these things to create doubt in us, to think that there's something more than what we have, to cause us to question the love, the passion, the fidelity of those around us or in charge of us even. It could be a great thing to hear about what God's doing all around the world. We should celebrate that, that we can see those things, but we should be praising God as the response for that, not longing for something we don't have. The Apostle John tells us how to combat the temptations between being distracted by the imperfections of the messengers, the human representatives that God's chosen to use, or how to avoid the danger of being drawn towards counterfeit powers that aim to distract and lead people astray. The solution is to look to Jesus and his word. Jesus Christ must be the center of everything we set our faith upon. If he's just a little bit off to the side, we're off the mark completely. 1 John 4, 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. There are false prophets. There are false displays of power. There are false teachers who would lead people astray. And there are many of them in this world, but we are called to test them. You must not give in to the temptation to be captivated by some display of power, but test the content of the message. Verses 2 to 6. But, you know that, but, but this you know, the Spirit of God, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. That is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them. But we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. No matter what power exists, no matter what signs are done, no matter what emotions are raised by something we witness or see, no matter what amazement we may feel at what somebody can do in performance or power, the test must always be upon the content of the message and seeing what does the message say about Jesus Christ. Is Jesus, our God, lifted up and exalted over all things, or is he brought down by this message? Is he seen as the glorious God who's done all the things that we could never do? Or is he just one way among many? 
Is Jesus the point of everything, the one who has the greatest power, or is the emphasis always put upon the signs or wonders or experiences that someone is promoting? Is the scripture rightly handled in its context, in harmony with all of its part? Is that the focus of the ministry that we're listening to? Or is the pursuit of power or experiences the main focus of that? John says, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Where have the apostles spoken? Scripture. So if that's not the center of no matter what else we may see, no matter what else may be appealing to us, if the Scripture and Jesus Christ are not at the center of that proclamation, stay away. Jesus Christ must be the center of all that we set our faith upon. False signs and wonders and powers, they do exist. And they will lead many of the world astray. It did with Pharaoh, going back to Exodus chapter 7, verse 13. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, just as Yahweh had said. Worship team, if you'll come this morning. The response of Pharaoh there should grieve us and should break our hearts. We should understand it was not unknown to God. It was part of God's plan. Pharaoh is going to continue to resist all throughout God's mighty displays of power that we'll look at in the plagues. God said it would be the case. He knew it as part of what he was doing. But to see any heart hardened against God should grieve us. Not just historically, but now. Because this continues to happen. And it grieves me today to see it, but we do see it. When our focus gets off of Jesus and off of the scriptures and onto something else, anything else, our hearts will become hardened to who God really is and what he's really doing. And it happens time and time again. And my prayer is, and what I've been, been thinking about with this message here and looking at this text for us today, is just asking God, please don't let that be true of anyone in this room. Please don't let any of our hearts become hardened because we've shifted our focus off the thing we should be looking at, focused off of Christ and onto something else. Please, God, don't let that be us. And for any hearts that are being hardened by our mistakes, by our choices, by our focus being moved, God, would you break those hearts open? Because he's the God who can. Nothing is too difficult for him. No sin is too far gone for him to forgive. None of us in this room today are too far to receive the love of Christ and his life-changing power. So we have a few moments to respond to him and to ask him, Lord, examine my heart. Search my ways. If there's anything wrong in me, any deceit in me, anything broken in me, any hardness in me, Lord, would you heal me? Would you restore me? Would you move in the great power that only you have. So we have a few moments to sing and to pray. The altars are open if you want to go up here and pray. If you want to pray where you are, that's fine. If you want to lift your voice and sing this morning, I'll encourage you to do that. But come to Jesus. and Focus upon him and examine your heart. Is he the focus? Is he the most important thing in your life? Is his power what you're seeking? Or has your focus shifted? Are you missing the point of all of this? Let's sing and pray together. Lord, I pray that each of us would set our focus upon you, that you would be the one whom we look to day by day. The lesser things of this world would fade away as we look to your glory, that nothing, Lord, would captivate us 
but the pursuit of you and the obedience of you, honoring of you with our lives, with our words. Each of us are imperfect, Lord, and each of us fail at this time and time again, but we thank you for your grace, the grace that covers each and every failure. Lord, as we humble ourselves before you, we ask for you to work in us. Change us, Lord. Make us into the people that you want us to be. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We rely upon it moment by moment. Be with us as we go this afternoon and throughout our week, Lord, we pray. May you bless each of us with your presence, your face shining upon us, your spirit at work in our hearts. We ask all of this because of the perfect one, Jesus Christ, and what he has done for us. We thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.